Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Boy, oh boy, folks, you're in for a treat because Tom Sawyer lifts up the paintbrush and applies it to the fence. I've never been more proud, Mr. Brown. I've never been more proud. <laughs> I, you know, congratulations, Kirk. Yeah. You're, you're really, you know, you're expanding your horizons, uh, becoming a seasoned interviewer. Hey, I think when you decide to launch a podcast, if you do 20 and I do one, that's a really good balance. Is, <laughs> that's a great ratio. I, I paint 20 slats. Yeah, that's right. And you do one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, so t- tell us about what we're going to hear today. Yeah. So this is, um, I would say this is in the archive of our evergreen con- content because we'll talk about this more later, but this is an interview that record- we recorded some time ago. But um, I've been a fan of Ben Tolchin, who is a pollster based in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been a fan of his for a long, long time. And uh, you can find his work at TolchinResearch.com. You can uh, find him on Twitter at Tolchin Research. But Ben is a strategic pollster. So he does analysis, public opinion analysis that he translates into campaign structures. And he's done that both in the advocacy space with nonprofits and foundations, but he's also done it with some individual politicians, uh, which we'll talk about in the interview. I love this conversation. I think this topic of how you use public opinion research to shape what we do more effectively is really rich. And um, that was, and Ben was generous to give us some time to talk. Okay, you're being so coy. I'm trying to be. Why I don't want to say the words. Why you should be? Why should you be coy? Ben is Bernie Sanders' pollster. Well, as it turns out, yes, as, he is. Not as it turns out, he's, <laughs> he's Bernie Sanders' pollster. Yes, he is. <laughs> and I mean, I think that it's fascinating. You interviewed him in mid 2019, 19 months ago. Yeah, when people were not, when Bernie Sanders was not the front runner for the Democratic. No. A thing. Mm-hmm. What a nomination. And as w- this show goes to air on Wednesday morning, March 4th. Yeah. The day after Super Tuesday. Yeah. And uh, it hasn't happened. Super Tuesday happens next week. We're, we're recording this the weekend before. But uh, I think it is fair to say that Bernie Sanders will most likely be a prominent part of the Democratic race come the morning that this thing comes out. Yeah. Well, and, and to be fair, probably the only reason we got to talk to Ben is because we did it last year be- before the cycle really kicked in. And so he had some time, you know, and I'm sure he has no time. You think he's busy now? <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine that he's busy. And and so the, the reason that we'll talk about this afterwards, sure. but what, what I would say to people going into this as they're about to listen to this interview is to be listening for the things that Ben is thinking yes. that help you understand 
how you actually create movements. Yes. And th- I think that's what's the that's what the most important thing about this interview is and frankly the most important thing about how we are seeing movements ones we like, ones we don't like taking off in this country. I completely agree. So please take the political part of this almost as a footnote because it's really about the discipline of the thought process going in that Ben's sharing with us that I think is really incredible and important. Oh, and before we go to Ben, I just want to make a big plug for ComNet 2020, which is going to be in Atlanta this year. And there's a little bit of time left for folks to submit a breakout session or a dialogue. So the deadline for that is this Friday, March 6th. And you can learn more about that to submit a proposal at www.comnet20.org. And Comnet 20 this year is going to be fabulous. It's going to be, I don't know, a thousand folks will be coming together in Atlanta from September 23rd to 25th. And so you should sign up to go to the conference anyway. But this is your chance to submit a session for a breakout or a dialogue. So I really encourage you to do that. Okay, now we're going to go to Ben. Okay, everybody, welcome to another edition of Let's Hear It. And I'm so excited this week. I've tracked down, I've mercilessly hunted down and grabbed Ben Tolchin from Tolchin Research to talk with us about polling, foundations, nonprofits. So Ben, I don't know where you are in the world right now, but I'm so glad you're joining us this week. And thank you for giving us some time to talk about all this stuff. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. What Eric, Brad, and I have been doing with this podcast is just following these breadcrumbs, if you will, of different people working on different parts of this whole arena involving nonprofits and foundations and how they're using communications. And I am very excited to talk to a pollster about these topics. Could you see a connection between the work you're doing with polling and what we're trying to do in, in kind of walking our way around this journey with foundations and nonprofits and how they're working with communications? Can you talk a little bit about just how you see that connection or how it, how it plays out in your own work? Yeah, sure. You know, I do, you know, just so folks have an understanding of what I do and my firm does. And Tolchin Research, we are a polling and strategic consulting company. We specialize in qualitative and quantitative research, both focus groups and survey research, as well as data analytics. And we work for a wide range of progressive clients, nonprofits, foundations, as well as candidates and ballot measures. And, you know, in terms of the foundation and nonprofit space, our goal is to, you know, advocate for progressive change. And we've worked on a lot of advocacy programs and in, in, over the years, our communications programs to try to shape public opinion for progressive causes. And we've done a lot of work, good work with foundations over the years and nonprofits. And, and um, uh, you know, in our experience with them is typically foundations have the money to pay for my services for research. So they tend to play a very, very important role, whether funding a nonprofit to pay for research or funding it directly through the foundation. And so I, I've got a long history of working with foundations on funding research. And I think they play a really important role in allowing our polling to advise sort of progressive advocacy efforts out there. So tell me this whole thing about strategic, did you say strategic polling? Did I get that right? There are a lot of really good, reputable polling firms out there that do public polling or Pew Research is one example, right? Uh And they're providing a public service and, you know, for the greater good of sharing all the polling they do, but fulfill a very different role. My job is to give advice, strategic counsel and guidance to my clients, whether it's foundations, nonprofits, or candidates running for office. And I'll give an example of that. So there are two examples where I 
worked closely with the foundation on a survey that led to a bigger project that led to pretty dramatic uh, policy win. And one was the California millionaires tax years ago, where you know coming out of the Great Recession, uh, basically the, you know, the right wing blamed public employees and their pensions on budget deficits right after the Great Recession. And the reality was it was, you know, Wall Street banks and irresponsible behavior by Wall Street banks that led to uh, the Great Recession. And that led to mm. huge budget deficits that led to major cuts in essential services, including healthcare and education. And yet the right wing was blaming, you know, public employees and their pensions for the, these budget deficits. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. So in California, you know, one way to solve a budget deficit is to raise taxes. And back mm. then, you needed a two-thirds vote from the legislature, and that wasn't happening. Or you go to the ballot, and it's very hard to pass a revenue increase at the ballot. Very few have been passed in the history of a 100-year-plus history of, of the state having ballot measures. Right. So I came up with the idea. I worked on uh, Prop 63, which was 2004 is the original millionaire's tax to tax, a marginal tax increase of 1% on those making over a million dollars to fund uh, mental health services. And I thought, you know what, if we raise taxes on the wealthy, we can reframe the whole debate about the budget and balance the budget and restore funding cuts that have been slashed. So I pitched this idea to a foundation and they funded a poll to test the concept of, you know, what kinds of revenue measures would voters support, if any, to balance the budget? So conceptual research. And we found, lo and behold, that voters were really supportive of raising tax on the wealthy to balance the budget. I then took that research that a foundation funded and went to California Federation of Teachers, a, a teachers union. And then we did more in-depth research to flush out a ballot measure. Then we built a whole coalition and multiple rounds of research to develop the measure. Ultimately, long story short, it turned into Prop 30, which passed in 2012, which essentially was largely a tax on the upper income in California and has raised billions of dollars on an annual basis for essential services like healthcare and education. So that is something that I, as a pollster and strategist, do. And I'm very proud of that pretty significant progressive policy that got passed by voters ultimately and has had a huge impact on millions of people's lives in California. But that's a unique role that I play as a strategist, right? I came up with an idea, I pitched wow. it to a foundation, got funding, and then it turned into something much bigger. But it's a great example, I think, of the power of what foundations can do if they're not timid, right? I, I believe that nonprofits and foundations in this day and age with just huge problems facing our society, and not just the U.S. globally, right? I mean, you see similar challenges in Europe uh, as you do in the United States with cynicism towards institution, existing institutions, like people having doubt about whether it's traditional political parties that are struggling uh, or government in general, you name it. And I just think you have huge problems facing our country and our world, and how do you solve them? And I just feel that with such big problems facing our society, foundations and nonprofits are uniquely positioned to help solve these problems, but you can't think small and you can't be timid about it. You have to think big and you have to kind of swing for the fences. Well, and you know, so there's so much in there. Thank you, by the way, for that. That's a fascinating journey you just walked us through. And again, you know, it's funny, Ben, I feel like I'm talking to a rock star here a little bit. And so just, just to, I'm going to drop some names here, but I'm going to let you drop them first. So you mentioned you work on politics and political issues too. Any chance you've worked for any candidates I've ever heard of before? Yeah, our probably greatest claim to fame is Bernie Sanders uh, in 2016 and then re-up for another run at it in 2020. 
okay, well, we'll try not to get in the way of your 2020 uh, consultancy here. So we will we'll be a little bit careful about how we talk about this. But I'm just curious there, too, does working on the, you know, Bernie Sanders just blows up, it, at least as an observer of that whole process, it felt to me just kind of suddenly is larger than life and is occupying the national stage in such a significant way. What's it feel like to be in the background of that doing the polling work? Does it? I, I almost feel like it must feel like being with like a, a rock band on tour or something like that. But but my guess is that it's maybe a little bit, it's a little bit more uh, roll your sleeves up and you've got your hands in the dirt maybe than, than it would appear. But but just what's that experience like of doing polling where the stakes are large? So, you know, like that and, and having your having the person you're working with become such a prominent person, I'm assuming in part informed because of what you're seeing through the research you're doing and then the kind of strategic advice you're, you're drawing on from doing that work? Uh, I mean, it was uh, incredibly intense. Um, uh, <laughs> I I, well, I mean, look, the, the, the funny thing about Bernie, right, was, uh, I, look, I, 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 I give myself credit for identifying his potential. And part of it came mm-hmm. out of that work I did for the millionaire's tax I just talked about, where, I, you know, 2011 and 2012, I did a lot of research uh, in California, but focus groups and polling and saw just how powerful that populist sentiment was, anti-Wall Street, make the wealthy mm-hmm. pay their fair share sentiment was. So coming out of 2012, you know, then I heard Bernie was looking at running for president. And I said, you know what, I, I worked for Howard Dean in 04, so I knew the potential of an outside insurgent. By the way, another great name drop, and I'm glad you gave it to us. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, we've got Bernie Sanders <laughs> no, and Howard no. Dean, and I uh, didn't have to say either. Well, so I, I've cornered the market in, in insurgent, outsider insurgent presidential <laughs> candidates from Vermont, right? It's uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know how lucrative a market it is, but it's worked out well for me so far. That, right? That's um, great. <laughs> um, uh, nor I don't know how, how sustainable that business model is, but, but for yeah. the meantime, it, it seems to be doing well. But I knew from working on for Howard Dean, that there is, you know, a quarter to a third of the electorate that is supportive of kind of the progressive outside and outsider, right? And progressive hmm. insurgent. And, and I said, look, I mean, if Bernie's runs against Hillary, gets a third of the vote, that's pretty good because he's starting at zero, right? So that that's all upside. And he can, you know, run a campaign, raise some money, get to the convention and make a statement. And I knew the potential was there, but having worked for Dean and also in the millionaire's tax, and I knew that Bernie's message was really fit nicely in kind of that, that populist fervor, progressive populist fervor I was seeing. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I took a flyer on I look, a lot of uh, friends and, and colleagues and peers of mine in DC said, don't do it, don't do it. Cause yeah. it's a career ender, right? You don't want to take on the Clinton juggernaut. But I said, you know, look, uh, I'm in California. It, it's more upside for me than downside. I'll, I'll take a shot and ho- hopefully he'll raise some money, pull in a few States and then uh, it'll be a lot of fun. And then the next, yeah. you know, he raises 200 and, you know, nearly $250 million polls in 46 States and Puerto Rico. Uh, and uh, you know, we were in the thick of it and, and contention and, and, and just being a part of, this amazing campaign where, you know, someone was basically starting at zero and we got them to the brink of the nomination and got to, you know, upwards of 46 percent of pledged delegates uh, and now is, is a very influential figure nationally and within the Democratic Party and a leading progressive advocate um, uh, in this country, if not around the world. Um, you know, it's a heck of a it's been a heck of a ride so far. And, and again, I, I credit myself for identifying the poten- his potential. And yeah. because I was so in tune with the progressive populist message, you know, I was able to kind of drill down research and really hone it, help hone his message um, and, and, and kind of propel him to that next level through through the work that collectively we did as a campaign. And, you know, he's a great candidate and he has a great message. And we just kind of built off of that. 
So this is the part that I want to key into, and, it, and it's it's so interesting, right? Because you know Bernie Sanders reemerges as a force to be reckoned with in the 2020 cycle, and there's so much you could end up talking about in terms of the politics and the personalities and all that stuff, but. What I actually want to focus on, and hopefully this will be okay for you, given I'm sure this is kind of an interesting time for you as you're, as you're you know, going through this process. The thing about this whole story that strikes me is the listening part. It's the listening piece of this work that I think is so interesting about what you do. And I'm just curious to hear you reflect a little bit on this. So here, if I'm hearing this right, it sounds like you had this one experience with a campaign where you picked up a lot of information you got some data points about where people were at. So you were able to listen to that and correctly discern that. But then you were also able to get somebody to listen to you, meaning you were able to find a candidate who was willing to align with you. And, and then, of course, again, there's a whole personality piece around the strength of that individual to carry that message. But can you talk to me a little bit about the listening part? Because I'm curious to know more about what are we learning? What do we see? What's happening out there in this field that you know all of our nonprofits and foundations are working with and in? But then also the other side of that, which is how receptive do you find the field? How hard or easy is it for you to find partners to sort of take a look at what you're finding and seeing and to say, oh, great, we can align with that? I mean, do you have any thoughts about that whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Yeah, I think there's a lot there. Let me, let me focus on on a part of that, which is, I mean, the key to my effectiveness and success, quite frankly, is being able to tell a story, to tell a narrative, right? Mm. And boiling down what's in, what I have available to me into a, a kind of clear, concise, powerful narrative. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we did that very effectively with the millionaire's tax. And, you know, it's funny, in hindsight, it sounds obvious. Oh, taxing the wealthy? Sure, to fund education. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's popular. <laughs> But we had to build a whole coalition. We had there were progressive groups that were resistant or reluctant to sign on, and they, they wanted to pursue other options. And we had to kind of make the case in a very powerful story. About- but let me pa- let me pause you there. Why were they resistant? Like, what were they seeing? This I think is the heart of the matter. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what did because for example, so the progressive left, there was fifty at least fifty NGOs out there, all they're having their own agenda. Uh, so they're okay. all pursuing their own agenda. We had to come along with an idea that could unite this kind of broad coalition and get people on board with it. The left is not a top-down hierarchical, you know, structure. I like, like being like the right wing is much more hierarchical. Like, I mean, working for the Koch brothers, you have a lot of money and it's top-down. Or you know, uh, they, they listen to the right wing and it's like the message from Fox News. Remember, it's everywhere, and you hear the same message everywhere, right? The mm-hmm. left doesn't work that way, and it's mm-hmm. much more fragmented, much flatter. Everyone has their own agenda, and we're a much more diverse coalition on the left. So how do you pull people together? People who care about immigration reform, people who care about criminal justice reform, people who care about education and school fund. I mean, you name it, the list goes on a choice, women's health, right? So we have this broad, diverse coalition. And how do you get them all kind of to, to row in the same direction? That That's the challenge, right? It's not that they are against raising taxes on the wealthy. It's just like that may not be their main uh, uh, focus for the day. And we had to say, hey, everyone, let's this, this will because it's such a powerful narrative and it reframes the whole debate and solves a lot of problems by raising billions of dollars of revenue, by the way, 
all of you, whatever you're doing, will get more money, right? If you're in the healthcare space, you'll get more money. The education space, you'll get more money. Early child education, mm-hmm. you'll get more money because you're not getting cut as much, right? So, so that's yeah. how we're able to kind of build the coalition. But, but that's part of the challenge. So we were able to kind of boil it down to a very clear narrative about, you know, making the wealthy pay their fair share to restore the cuts to central services, right? We found restoring cuts was more effective with voters because it didn't sound like you were adding a lot to existing government. They were skeptical skeptical of government spending, right? So you have to reassure voters that, you know, you're not just spending more money for nothing. Like it's actually restoring programs that you all miss. Like you saw, people saw class sizes increase after the Great Recession, you know, restore them. We're not going to go to cut them in half. Right. We're going to just go back to what we had. So it was a kind of more reasonable, attainable goal. In my experience with working for the Sanders campaign in 2016 uh, was similar where look, Bernie has a very clear vision of what he believes in. Right. He, but his stump speeches was an hour and a half long. Right. Hmm. And um, you can't, you know, in politics or any sort of communications campaign, you know, it's it's the era of Twitter, 140, 280 characters. Yeah. It's TV ads, 30 seconds or 15 seconds. How do you boil what you're, you know, pitching into a soundbite and distillable, clear, concise, powerful message? And that was where my research played a critical role. We were able to boil down Bernie's hour and a half long stump speech into you know, it's a rigged economy propped up by a corrupt political finance system. And so that that was the essence of his message. But that we didn't start with that. We started with an hour and a half of material, including a lot of terms and language that you know, didn't resonate with voters. Like Bernie used the term oligarchs and he referenced, <laughs> you know, he references Norway and Sweden, you know, Denmark, Norway and Sweden. And we said, and he still references that sometimes, but yeah. in the TV ads, I can tell you, we didn't talk about oligarchs or, and uh, um, um, we didn't talk about Norway, Denmark or Sweden. We talked about, yeah. uh, you know, Medicare for all or making sure everyone has affordable health care, right? Or, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, billionaires, uh, you know, not the word oligarch, but the word billionaires who are buying politicians and buying elections. Right. That resonated yeah. with people. Um, so, yeah. so those are things we learned through listening to focus groups. And then you, you, you kind of get the feedback through qualitative research and then you you test the, the concepts in quantitative and survey research. And oftentimes it's an iterative process. Right. The ideal research program is is a multiple rounds of research so you 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 you, you listen to voters or, or the public or your audience and with focus groups you test a theory in um the survey but then you find okay then you sometimes have to mix and match what you tested and then do another round uh of either qualitative or quantitative to kind of drill it down so that, that that's the ideal research plan and how precise do you have to be about your thinking when you start that process? Because, you know, this is the other part about the strategic aspects of this that strikes me. On the one hand, you know, when we talk about communications plans and communication strategy, and again, probably wrong word, it always feels somewhat binary. Like we get the more precise we can be about goals, the more precise we can be about decision makers and audiences and values, all that stuff. We feel like we are at least better able to track what we're doing and and then probably feel like we have a better chance of succeeding. And yet at the same time, that whole approach might be such tunnel vision, if you will, you know, at the single issue level. And there actually might be so much built into that in terms of who's with us, who's against us, that in a weird way, it may be problematic, you know? And so I'm just curious, like when you think about starting a strategic process, and it sounds like actually some of your work has literally been you just thinking of stuff and aligning people with what you're thinking about. So I'd actually be curious to hear if if that's actually true too. But 
how specific do you need to be as you start this process of trying to understand what the landscape looks like for whatever you're trying to achieve? I, look, I, I mean, my view is you start broad, but you have to have a clear sense of what problem you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. That's really, you know, one of the challenges if you're trying to do progressive advocacy. I mean, for example, like climate change, that's obviously a huge problem. It can be amorphous, overwhelming for the average voter, right, or person yeah. out there. So, but, you know, if you want to say reducing carbon pollution or reducing toxic pollution, that is a little bit more digestible for the average person. And, you know, you can kind of quantify what that looks like. So that, that's an example of just being clear on what your problem you're trying to solve and your policy outcome or goal is. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. You know, one of the things we wrestle with a lot is that we actually like to promote solutions, not just problems, you know, but sometimes it seems like it can be hard to get people to work with us if we're not kind of just focused on our problems because we like to organize around problem sets so much. Do problems versus solutions lend themselves differently to different kind of either research strategies or different advice that comes out, you know, at the end of the process? Is it easier to activate people by flashing fear in front of them, then instead of presenting them with hope, opportunity, and connection? Or how does that land for you? I mean, you can have an aspirational uh, component to it, I mean, with a, with a solution. But, but again, for the average person, like it should be solving a problem that matters to them or, or that they see as relevant, right? So, yeah. But look, leadership matters. I mean, advocating for a position, sometimes, you know, the public isn't always fully aware of uh, the problem and, uh, until a leader uh, articulates it. I mean, I'll give an example. Bernie in 2016, he obviously talked a lot about income inequality. Um, yeah. Before he launched his campaign, if you ask the average Democratic right. primary voter in New Iowa, New Hampshire, what the most important problem was, it was the economy. I mean, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't income inequality. But yeah. during the campaign, after Bernie launched his campaign, and he honed in on that issue. Guess what the number one problem was according wow. to Democratic primary voters during the middle of the primary, income inequality, right? So Bernie drove an issue, a message, which it was below the surface. I mean, you talk about it, people would kind of talk about it in focus groups, for example, about, well, the rich aren't paying their fair share. I feel the middle class is shrinking. So you, there were the, the, the kind of the pieces were there, but until Bernie or, or you know, any other sort of uh, uh, elected official or, or politician can, or, 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 or leading organization, it doesn't have to be uh, a politician can put the pieces together for the public to yeah. see, um, yeah. you know, but, but yeah, I mean, there's an opportunity to drive an agenda, right? I mean, obviously running for president, it gives you an amazing platform to do that, but it can be done on a smaller scale, local scale if there are resources behind it. Well, I love that example because it's just, this is, I see, as I see it, our task. I love that example of income inequality where that, you know, was not the language defining the debate until you had a chance to work on it. It just seems like that is fundamentally our job here maybe is to actually get our narratives and our frames um, as the context for the conversation. And it just feels like so often we're just wildly off the mark there, or we're just getting overwhelmed by 
you know, what we'll call circumstance, but, but I think I would believe is actually just a better organized process, maybe looking at us across, across the way. But so this would be my question then for you as a nonprofit or foundation person might be listening to this conversation, the idea of doing polling can just feel so cumbersome and feel like it takes so long. And yet clearly there's an approach to doing it. That's so nimble that you can inform something as dramatic as a presidential cycle. Um, so what would you say to nonprofits and foundations? Like what should they be thinking about when they think about public opinion research? And, and, and even, I mean, is there, is there an amount that, a dollar amount even, or just a scale of project at which people should always just necessarily be thinking about this stuff or, or is it more like, yeah, no, actually this is really work for the select few. I mean, how would you, how would you address that? Like what, what should we be giving nonprofits and foundations in terms of just considerations for how they think about using polling to inform their work? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, our rule of thumb with polling is if you're going to do any, spend any real money on communications, whether that's paid or earned media, right? If you're spending six or seven figures on a communication or advocacy or, or, or a campaign, well, you sure as heck should do polling to inform that campaign, right? Yeah. Um, um, you know, I think the other piece is if you uh, have run into a dead end on a policy perspective, then research is extremely helpful to help get around that. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I, I am on the board of a JVS here in San Francisco, Jewish Vocational Services. It's a workforce development job training organization. You know, as a board member, I'm on the public policy committee, and the organization gets a lot of money from public sector, right? Especially uh, local, like San Francisco County. You know, there's a, something called the Children's Fund in San Francisco that funds children services, and it was up for renewal. There was a coalition of groups, all nonprofits, mostly children's advocacy groups, and they were trying to figure out, you know, about renewing it. And Mayor Edley, who passed away, um, but when he was mayor, he he was. Re- reluctant to expand it, right? In part because he had other priorities. And I'm sitting there with this coalition. I said, look, first of all, I mean, I've done enough polling in San Francisco that if you poll the idea of funding, providing more funding for kids, most voters are going to say yes to that. And if you do a poll that shows that and show it to the mayor, he's going to have a really hard time saying, telling you no. Yeah. But I said, the other part of it is uh, there were changes that people wanted to make. And I said, look, just expand the pie and then you can make as many changes as you want and know you're not fighting, you know, for the same size pie, right? You're increasing the size of the pie so everybody wins. So we did a poll and sure enough, found that uh, it's huge, overwhelming support for expanding the children's fund, providing more funding for children's services in San Francisco. Ultimately got on the ballot and it won, as my poll predicted, with 74% of the vote. Uh, Again, it was similar to the millionaire's tax and similar to the lesson I want to convey to your listeners found it from the foundation world and the nonprofit world is, is thinking big and bold. Right. And because yeah. these nonprofits, um, they're nonprofits, so they're not political advocacy organizations. And I came along and said, look, giving strategic advice, saying everybody's going to win if there's more money in the pot. So we can all agree on that. Yeah. And it, again, it was foundation. It was funded by nonprofits because it was, you know, testing the concept of of, of this idea. And it could have been funded by a foundation if if we had foundation funding. Yeah. But ultimately, it led to hundreds of millions, tens of millions of dollars a year, ultimately hundreds of millions of dollars over time of additional revenue for children's services. So all these organizations ultimately could benefit from this effort, but it took a little bit, you know, it took my nudging them to say, let's be bold about this. And it worked out. And look, I mean, I could have been wrong, but I had enough experience to know that uh, I I could frame it in a way that that we, we could probably get the outcome I was hoping for. You know, I see too many coalitions 
talking around in circles and, and not often enough do they take that bold step of let's try it. Obviously in California, you have a ballot measure process, but in other states too, uh, you know, with the advocacy or what have you, local ordinances, whatever, whatever, there are many tools in the toolbox to achieve progress, and, but you don't do it by sitting around a table talking about it. Well, this makes me think, I'm putting words in your mouth, so feel free to strike the record here if you want, but this makes me think that some of the challenges you're identifying that we should be thinking about are first creativity and willingness to be bold, but also the collaboration that has to come along with that so that if we do get more aspirational with our agendas, we actually can bring more people together to pull that off. Is that is that a fair statement or would you? No, absolutely. Look, I mean, the examples I've laid out have all millionaires tax, the Children's yeah. Coalition here in San Francisco were all built on coalitions. Right. It was all about building a broad, diverse coalition to have the strength to pass it. Because, look, I, I've been on issue advocacy campaigns where we have one major funder and that's about it. And guess what? They they inevitably fail. Right. Because you're not right. big enough, broad enough. You don't have the strength to be successful. So no, absolutely. But, you know, but that's part of it. That's part of the legwork, right? It's like the ideas that I've laid out were not horrendously controversial, right? Raising tax on the wealthy to fund essential services. It, it, it actually was a challenge to build a coalition, but on the front end, you know, it, it was popular and polling showed it was popular. So we were able to build a coalition around it. Same thing with the children's fund. Once we pitched the idea of, of expanding, i.e. raising more money for these services, the whole coalition was on board because it meant more money for everybody. Um, and that's part of it. It's like coming up with a strategy. So it's a win, win, win all around. That's great. Okay. So I've got one last for you before we let you, uh, and li- we liberate you back to your very busy schedule. Um, and this one's a little unfair, but I can't I can't resist asking it. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you've got kids. So I'm going to give you a job you never get anymore, which is I'm going to put you in charge of everything for a day. OK, you're in charge of everything and you can wave a magic wand and an entire foundation's worth of work and strategy emerges and you can scale that foundation to whatever size you want. What would that look like? What would you love to see? philanthropy or nonprofits investing in in this arena? Well, I would say broadly speaking, I mean, the challenge is foundations are built to last, right? They, I mean, are inherently conservative by constitution because they're, you know, they, they amass a lot of money and they only give out a certain amount of it, right? They want to make sure they don't spend all their money in one year. So, so you know, that tends to develop a culture of preservation and therefore a more conservative culture. So I would say, of course, it's essentially want the foundation to be around long term, but I would have kind of tiered approach to problem solving. I would have kind of shorter, medium term, medium term goals that are more aggressive in trying to go for it more and, and be be not be afraid of failing. Right. And I think mm. that because I've been you know, involved with efforts that foundations, they make a big push, they fall short and typically you don't succeed on the first go second or third and then they kind of retrench and then and then they don't ever do it again so i think you need it need a tiered approach but i I am worried about the future of our country i do we're in in the western world i mean you see europe is really struggling uh with with its its sense of identity uh our country is highly polarized and the fact is you do have gridlock in washington so if you want to see progress you you got to go for it and um, and that's on you know a range of issues, whether that's that's climate change, the environment, whether that's healthcare, whether that's uh, education. You know we're facing real challenges on on multiple fronts. But I just think that 
you know, if you don't go for it at a certain level, not all entirely. I mean, I get that if the foundation and sport have to be, you know, fiscally responsible, but, but just to have a segment of their budget to be more aggressive uh, and to be bolder and, and, you know, seek opinions and thoughts from people like me who are willing to kind of brainstorm with them and be bold about it, but also be effective, right? I mean, I don't want to just, just try something that's not going to work. I'm not saying go shot in the dark here and there, but through research and brainstorming session, they're going to have a clear kind of sets of policy that we can make progress on. Uh, but it requires, you know, kind of being a little bit bolder. Just imagine of all the foundations that we know of in our work, if they are allocated even a relatively small amount to risk or to this this more risky proposition, but could work together in achieving it, you could actually amass probably a pretty significant pool of resources to really make a difference and yet not even actually have a material impact on their annual giving either. You know, so there's that's that's a really interesting thought. Um, and, and then lastly, Ben, what, what what in your work, what are you hopeful about? Uh, look, I think there is a lot of energy right now. I'm partly reaction. I hate to say it, but like, you know, the current president has ginned up a lot of civic activism. You know, there's a lot of energy out there. And the question is, can you channel that? Right. And I, I yeah. for example, I'm working with the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center, who had never engaged in politics before, neither organization had. But post wow. 2016, they recognized that they're, you know, these longstanding, very successful and well-funded NGOs recognized they had a political problem, you know, on their hands that they could sue all they wanted. But ultimately, if you have a bad Supreme Court and really bad courts and bad legislation that's continually getting passed, um, you know, you're you're eventually not going to end up ahead of where you want to be. So so I've been working. I got hired by both of them and I've done political work with them the last um, uh, couple of years. And it's it's just I'm glad to see the awakening on the left to recognize that the stakes are very high and that they can't just it can't just be a C3 versus because the right wing uses C3, C4, you name it. Uh, and, and it's been a very uh, uh, unlevel playing field. So that, that yeah. gives me hope to to see that that the left is engaged. I mean, these organizations are raising a lot of money because the left, you know, their donors are engaged and, and, and fired up and motivated. So I'm glad to see that they're channeling that energy in a way that's, I think, going to be more effective long term. Well, Ben Tolchin, thank you very much. And thanks for joining us here. And let's hear it. Okay, we are back with Tom Sawyer. We're I back. Mean, Kirk Brown. Come on. I did some hard work there, didn't I? I know. You're, you're sweating. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm exhausted still. It was just, months just ago. Just thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. And your conversation with Ben Tolchin, who's a pollster based here in San Francisco. Yeah. And how'd you, how'd you meet Ben? You know, we've known we've known each other for a long time. Um, he was involved in some polling work that was uh, related to a California-based initiative that I was involved in back in the day. Um, it was a conservation-related issue, and so that's how I got to know him. I got to know his work. He, uh, needless to say, we, as we had said before, this isn't a con- this this show is not a political show, right? But the fact that he is Bernie Sanders' pollster just cannot be avoided, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and that you can. <laughs> You can kind of get a sense out of Ben. There's a, there's a burniness uh, in, in Ben, but um, you also get the sense that that he um, he really understands that just how important it is to simplify to create a narrative that people can actually connect with. Yeah. On on some very basic level, 
(laughs) taking Bernie Sanders' dump speech from an hour and a half down to whatever it is now couldn't have been easy. Stripping the word oligarch from it. Stripping the word oligarch. (laughs) Billionaires! Billionaires and billionaires! (laughs) That's right. uh, couldn't Couldn't have been easy. But And then this is interesting because it never occurred to me that, I mean, I, you know, you listen to Ben tell it, he was at the center of all this, and I, I can't imagine that it's not true, but polling doesn't tend to drive correct politicians. Often people uh, complain that politicians are, are whipsawed by pollsters yeah. or that, that polling is responsive to the shifting winds of ideas but uh, there seem to be there seems to be something slightly different in this and i'm not quite sure what it is do you have any thoughts about that yeah so this is one of those places where i hope in some magic universe there's a room full of people like ben who talk with people like we've known in the foundation world about this dynamic regularly and what i think we picked up from ben is this process of doing deep listening you know, using polling to get a sense of where the instincts of um, a huge chunk of the electorate, and all of it, but a huge chunk of the electorate is at, unlock some language that will connect with pe- where people are at, and then begin applying that to some strategic political initiatives that can make a real difference. And I think there's a real interesting dynamic here because we often in communications talk about you have to meet people where they're at. You know, you've got to, you've got to speak to things that are relevant. We also talk about how we want to drive narratives. And so there's there's this interesting yeah. dynamic here between, well, I want to meet you where you're at, but I actually want to take you someplace, which I know you want to go. And that's, that is, to me, the real magic of what Ben is unlocking here is that he's not trying to um, you know convince people he's right, which is so often in the work that we see, I'm right, you're wrong, how do I win? And and we know that binary way of thinking just it's not it's it's no longer relevant. It's not it's not how we should be approaching the work necessarily. But he's 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 executing on this process of saying, I can conduct really smart and effective research that assembles a case for what might be possible, but then apply that in a strategic way for how we can actually move the conversation forward. And he talks about how that's happened both at the national level, but also at the local level in some, you know, decidedly progressive domains like for instance. San Francisco, and even how the challenges, I think, uh, sometimes sound very similar, you know, when you think about what it looks like to do this work at scale. So so to me, that's the balance of what we're hearing. And, and, and I, you know, I never get it quite right, but I think he calls it like strategic polling yeah. is, is his characterization for it. That notion of strategic polling and the strategic use of public information uh, or, or public opinion research to, to drive our campaigns, I just don't know how many places where that conversation is really happening, you know, where, where that, that, that kind of rich interplay of here's the data, here's how we can apply it, and then here's how we can get aspirational. Um, I don't know how often it's happening. And then the last thing I'll say there, he talks about trying to assemble coalitions. And even within the progressive movement, how it was at certain times difficult to bring people together for strategies that ultimately proved to be winning, but how much you know resistance there might be to go through that process. So that cl- that aspect of how you build collaborative campaigns where you bring people together to try something that's aspirational and new and maybe risky that might even fail, you know, because he talked about that at the end. I think that is, I, I think that's social change. I think that's that's our whole movement almost in a nutshell, you know. Um, but but this is this is the use of the public opinion research part to kind of start the process. And again, I don't know how many campaigns really have the opportunity to do that. And it's not just a discipline issue, which I think at times it is. But it's clearly a resource issue. You know, how many groups just have a 
grab bag of resources they can pull from to use a research to shape what they're doing more effectively. I, almost none in my experience. So what do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because if you think about it, uh, if you're going to spend a lot of money on a campaign of whose outcome you have uh, some preconceived notions, <laughs> but which haven't been proved to be effective out in the field, then it feels like a poll, certain amount of polling would be a good investment in helping you either reinforce what, that what you know that you're on the right track or to put you onto the right track. Yeah. So it's kind of like it's kind of like a marketing budget for uh, any nonprofit that's yeah. trying to raise money. Uh, and I'm on the board of a, a small theater company and our marketing budget is very low and the marketing folks say you know your marketing budget needs to be 10% of your of your of your budget. Like right. oh my god, people fall over. Yeah. But he says it, it, it's an investment. Yeah. It's an investment in the in the growth and the and the continued sustainability of an organization. And so I think that in this way let, let's just say that polling is one way of answering the question, what makes you so sure mm-hmm. that either this message is the right message, that this set of solutions are likely to move people to action or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if you can't answer the question, what makes you so sure, then you're just guessing. Yeah. And no one is no one is that smart. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't mean to say that in, in a disparaging way, but... You know, we all have a um, we have our own view of things, and it can't possibly encompass all the views of all of the audiences or all of the people that we're trying to connect with or to persuade. So, I I think that in that way, this helps you answer that question. Of course, the polling has to be good. You have to ask the right kinds of questions. You have to not game it. You have to do the things that you need to do in order to get the answer. And I'll tell you a funny story. Huh. I. When, when I was at the Center for a New American Dream, <laughs> way back when, whose yeah. motto was more fun, less stuff. It was a great yeah. organization. I yeah. still love it. We, we would do polls that were designed to, um, I always say, put a number on the zeitgeist. Hmm. And we would, <laughs> it was an organization about consuming responsibly. So we would ask people questions about the, let's see now, um, trying to simplify the holidays and mm. things like that. So we were trying to get a sense of how people were thinking about these things. And if you have a number and you put out the number, 82, 82% of the people say they they would like to simplify the holidays because they think the holidays are getting too commercialized or yeah. something like that. You can get some news with it. Yeah. And I worked with, worked with this one pollster. And he, he was, he was I, I would say he was a, uh, uh, I don't know if you can call it strategic polling, hmm. but he I would say, hey, I want to do a poll. And he would go, great, what number do you want? I'm like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but uh so in those sometimes you use polling to put a number on the zeitgeist so that you can talk about a story but sometimes you you need to use polling to see whether your messages actually are are working and to get a sense of how to talk about an issue so he was talking about restoring cuts versus raising taxes yeah that that's and uh, i was like frank luntz is is screaming in my ear like that's right yeah it felt very luntzy but the question is is that is that okay yeah what what do you mean what's okay well you know when talking about um shifting the narrative like that through kind of clever use of of language uh, it feels a, sometimes it feels a little uh, luncy. No, 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 no. Not only is it okay, it's utterly necessary. This is because, and, and this, I love that nugget about the restoration conversation. Um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about 
fear versus something else as a messaging frame, you know, problems versus solutions, you know, and using hope and optimism and connection as, as ways to a uh, platform. And so when I hear him talking about that, I hear him presenting a case for how you actually pull that language through to real change. And, and so I would argue, it's funny when you say Lency, I mean, unfortunately, uh, a person like that gets famous and starts writing books because there is some relevance to what that person's describing, you know, and, and I think it's actually okay for us as social change communicators to try to align with real people in their daily lives to make real differences, you know, and, and, um, one way you do that is you say, Very Oh, radical. Isn't that crazy? And, 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 and so, and, and, but this was the thing about that rest restore conversation. I was like, huh, I think I've heard somebody else say they're trying to make something great again. I think I heard somebody else say that, right? And this restoration language, this this language that says we're trying to return to an aspirational place, it's a very interesting narrative device, you know, because you're 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 actually saying, well, let's go back to some place that's familiar, yet aspirationally is actually an idea maybe that's only in our heads that may or may not be that real. Right. But then when we're grounding that in actually something that's really about driving resources to critically needed public goods, not only is that okay, it's crucial because as Ben's case studies point out, it's not going to happen otherwise. So I I see it more like a discipline we need to embrace than an underhanded thing that we're trying, you know, to do. It's also really difficult. The one thing I was, in terms of um, why I wanted to come back to Ben and talk with him, um, and I've worked with a bunch of different pollsters over over time, I'm sure you have too, crafting really useful public opinion research tools is really difficult. And there's a real um, almost therapist relationship I think you need to have with your pollster because you're the content expert. You're the domain expert. They're the public opinion research expert. And getting to a meeting place about what you're trying to learn and how you can unlock that is is really artful. And I think that Ben is showing us, giving us a glimpse into that art. You know, And so again, I think there's an art science here about how this comes together and drives the agenda, but I I don't think it's underhanded to use language more effectively. In fact, I think it's called social change communications. That's what I would say. What do you think about that? Oh, that was fun. I enjoyed just lighting you up. <laughs> sorry. Come I on. agree with you. I was just messing with you. Come on. That's really mean. I'm sorry. You're so mean. No, that's really good. mean. Um, <laughs> the, other, the other interesting point that I thought he made was that if you run into a dead end on policy, mm. polling is a way to get around that. Yeah. What... I mean, just what are your thoughts on that? And could you expand on what you think he was trying to say there? Well, at the end, he talked a little bit about, you know, if he had, if he could do anything, what would he do? And he, and he would, I, I kind of summarize his last comments there about he would encourage more risks, more risk taking. And again, I really want to say our conversation is not about personalities and it's not about politics. It's about the use of this tool and this discipline to inform our thinking. But I do think we ha- we're seeing this play out kind of an international conversation right now about how aspirational can or should we be? You know, how, what's, what's fair to say and not to say, you know, what, what hopes and dreams for what's possible? Is it fair to articulate? And is that real or not? You know, can you follow through on that or not? And what I, but again, this is that place that that meeting place between meeting people where they're at and then trying to drive the narrative what I feel is in the heart of what he's saying is that he's saying, you know, my data show there's, there's real, there's a, there's a viable part of our population that will support a more aggressive agenda on any, you know, issue X. And that's a really important starting place to not ignore and, and to kind of build from and around that. And and it sounds like to me, what he's saying is that um, I think that there should be more risk taking, even if we think it's going to fail, there should be more risk taking. I will say one thing, um, income inequality, 
you know, as, as an, as an issue that he's helped elevate through his work over time. I don't know that I love that language as much anymore, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, and I, and I was very, and I am genuinely grateful to Ben and his work again, just because of the model and, and kind of the, the way he's brought many, many people, I think, into these conversations, which is what we, I think we would agree we need. But I was even thinking like in, income inequality, is that really it? Like, are we saying it right? You know, and, and again, it's like, I'd love to, you know, once he gets done with all of his work and we get our public opinion research cohort together on one of these, you know, podcasts and start talking about that stuff, I, I'd love to workshop that word a little, that, that language a little bit, you know, and like what's pers- pervasive or helpful about it versus not. So, but yeah, that's, I guess that's what, I, I don't know. Does that, does that sound right? Does that sound right? It does. It does. And it, it's also true that the things that win elections are not necessarily the things that start movements. And yeah. that, that, that's an, another conversation for another day. Sure. Because the, the, I don't know, the, the implications are the, the goal in an election is to win first to win. And yeah. if you're lucky, you get to govern. Sure. Uh, and so it, it really does complicate things. Yeah. It's much, much harder to win, to win the win. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that elections, our political system is set up for that. Yeah. So uh, I do think that that actually makes it sometimes far more difficult to govern Yeah, is the process of winning is causes you to have to create these br- bright lines in on a variety of issues, which ugh, got me started. One last thing I'd say about Ben that I, I just wanted to comment on that I really appreciate, you know, he, he mentioned he's cornered the market on progressive candidates from Vermont. Right. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that's an effective business <laughs> strategy. Like outside the box, progressive <laughs> candidates or, you know, yeah, it's true. But, it's but the, true. the nugget of his work that I really related to appreciate and, and empathize with is this notion of I'm kind of in the field. I have this sensibility that I've developed over time and I have some instincts about what could happen next that I think are worth exploring. And again, he calls that strategic polling and he's got a certain set of tools that he uses to do that. But that sensibility for how we support our field and domain experts on that journey. Um, someone called it a journey of discovery. Others was not. Oh God. <laughs> but but I think isn't that interesting and important? And 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 again, I, I just I I, I want to believe in some magic world that we've got rooms full of people that are being invited to do that in a very thorough and disciplined way, and it's helping move the needle on mm-hmm. what we think is possible. And I just really appreciated that part about Ben's work. Well, I think that's that's really really true, and I mean. <sighs> It's going to get interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Here well, we go. thanks, Kirk. Thanks for getting off your duff and, asking, and and asking some questions, doing an interview. That was really cool. I'm exhausted. I need to go take a nap for the next six months. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you in six months. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Let's hear it. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it.
Oh, and before we go to Ben, I just want to make a big plug for ComNet 2020, which is going to be in Atlanta this year. And there's a little bit of time left for folks to submit a breakout session or a dialogue. So the deadline for that is this Friday, March 6th. And you can learn more about that to submit a proposal at www.comnet20.org. And Comnet 20 this year is going to be fabulous. It's going to be, I don't know, a thousand folks will be coming together in Atlanta from September 23rd to 25th. And so you should sign up to go to the conference anyway. But this is your chance to submit a session for a breakout or a dialogue. So I really encourage you to do that. Okay, now we're going to go to Ben.